I'm Jeffrey Rosen, President and CEO of the National Constitution Center, and welcome to We the People, a weekly show of constitutional debate. The National Constitution Center is a nonpartisan nonprofit chartered by Congress to increase awareness and understanding of the Constitution among the American people. This episode of We the People celebrates the anniversary of the start of the Lincoln-Douglas debates on August 21st, 1858. That historic series of seven debates in Illinois saw Abraham Lincoln and Stephen Douglas vying for a Senate seat and debating crucial issues about the Constitution, its relationship to the Declaration of Independence, and the future of America. Joining us to discuss Lincoln's constitutional vision and the Lincoln-Douglas debates are two of America's leading scholars of Abraham Lincoln. Sidney Blumenthal is an author, journalist, and a former senior advisor to President Bill Clinton. He is a fellow at the Society of American Historians and was previously senior fellow at NYU's Center on Law and Security. Sid is the author of the five-volume biography, The Political Life of Abraham Lincoln, and the third volume, All the Powers of the Earth, which covers Lincoln's life from 1856 to 60, the period of the Lincoln-Douglas debates, will be released this September. Sid, congrats on the third volume publication, and it's wonderful to have you back on the show. Thank you, Jeff. I'm delighted to be here. And Lucas Morell is professor of politics and the head of the politics department at Washington and Lee University. He is on the boards of the Abraham Lincoln Association and the Abraham Lincoln Institute. He's the author of Lincoln's Sacred Effort, Defining Religion's Role in American Self-Government. Recently, he published Lincoln and Liberty, Wisdom Through the Ages. And his forthcoming book, Lincoln and the American Founding, will be released next July. Lucas, congrats on the forthcoming publication of your book. And thank you so much for joining. Thank you for the invitation. Glad to be here. Sid, your new volume, All the Powers of the Earth, covers the period of the Lincoln-Douglas debates. Let's set the stage by helping our listeners understand the constitutional stakes in those debates. Lincoln insisted that the Missouri Compromise uh, should be uh, resurrected and the Kansas-Nebraska Act be repealed. Tell our listeners what the Missouri Compromise and the Kansas-Nebraska Act were and how they related to Lincoln's understanding of the relation between the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution. The Missouri Compromise was the original compromise uh, of 1820-21, which established a certain line of latitude across uh, the country, above which, um, uh, in the north, slavery was prohibited, below which, in the south, slavery was allowed. And that permitted two states to be admitted to the Union, balancing each other, Maine, a, uh, a free state, and Missouri as a slave state. And that held the peace, as it were, in politics uh, until the Mexican War. Uh, And in the Mexican War, a great amount of land was um, taken from the Mexicans. And the question was, what would happen to it? Would it be divided into into states? And would they be free or slave? Led to an enormous conflict that resulted in the Compromise of 1850. And that basically kept the Missouri Compromise and added a few things to it. In 1854, the Kansas-Nebraska Act was enacted that repealed the Missouri Compromise. This was engineered by Lincoln's perennial rival, Stephen A. Douglas, who was a powerful and ambitious senator from Illinois who very much wanted to be the president. He wanted the Democratic nomination for the presidency. He had tried in 1852 and failed. He wanted it in 1856. 
He wanted to be the builder of a transcontinental railroad. But how could you build it across the continent, across territory that was not organized as a territory or as a state? So he worked out a deal with the Southerners in the Congress, and they repealed the Missouri Compromise. That potentially opened up all this territory to a question of whether it would be slave or free. Douglas had an idea that the people who settled the uh, land would decide. He called it popular sovereignty. Lincoln, who had been in um, a kind of um, uh, chrysalis, as, <laughs> like a butterfly, he had been in the wilderness after his one term in the Congress, said he was aroused as never before, came back into politics to oppose the Kansas-Nebraska Act. Um, he was opposed to the extension of slavery, and politics was transformed as a result of it, and soon the Kansas territory became a bloody battlefield between people who wanted it to be a free state and those who wanted it to be a slave state. And they literally fought and killed each other. And the Lincoln-Douglas debates held that principal sentiment at the core of what was at stake there. Thank you for that very helpful introduction and for explaining the Missouri Compromise, the Compromise of 1850, the Kansas-Nebraska Act, and the nature of the Lincoln-Douglas debates. Um, Lucas, when Lincoln opposed the extension of slavery into the territories, was that a purely a policy position or was it a constitutional position? And how did Lincoln's view of the relationship between the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution inform his positions in the Lincoln-Douglas debate? Yes, those are all uh, very much related. What you see in 1858 is a, a stark clash of constitutional visions between Lincoln and Douglas. And the clash is linked to their uh, opposing interpretations of the founders' intentions, the American founders, especially in the Constitution. Each man argued that he was the legitimate heir of the founders' legacy. You've got Douglas quoting the Federalist Papers, Lincoln quoting Madison. They both believed that the founders' intentions should be followed, but they disagreed on what that intention was. Uh, interestingly enough, in our day and age, this is going to sound crazy, but Stephen Douglas actually campaigned in 1858 as the diversity candidate. <laughs> and I say that's ironic because Douglas makes it emphatic that he believes the United States was founded by white men for white men forever in the interests of white men. And he thought that diversity was not a racial thing, but a territorial thing. In other words, the federal principle uh, also known as states' rights. Douglas was the federal candidate in that sense. He believed that the founders founded this nation as a diverse nation, and therefore if some settlers wanted slavery, they could have it. If others didn't want it, they could get rid of it. But of course, the premise was that it was whites and always whites and only whites making these decisions. He castigated Lincoln and the Republican Party, which he called the Black Republican Party, the Abolition Party, uh, he castigated Lincoln as the, the candidate of uniformity. Lincoln wanted the federal government through Congress to squash all the states and territories into one particular mold. And he said that that's not what the founders intended. And so uh, Lincoln, as a uniform uh, or uniformity candidate for Douglas, was a, uh, the candidate of centralization, the candidate of, of overawing uh, federal power. Now, Lincoln had to, of course, uh, affirm that there was a federal principle in the Constitution, and he repeatedly said 
that the Republican Party was not interested in squashing slavery out of the states immediately because they had no federal authority to do so. The question was, what's going to happen in the territories? And are white people, especially in the North, going to do anything about whether black people, people who don't look like them, are enslaved there or not? Douglas said the American way, uh, the tried and true mom and pop and apple pie, red, white, and blue way is leave it for the locals to decide. Locals at the state level and locals at the territorial level. Lincoln said, no, this don't care policy, this policy of indifference, according to Stephen Douglas, about the very thing everybody cares about, which is whether slavery is going to spread or not. This policy of indifference, this local popular sovereignty a congressional non-interference policy is antithetical to what the founders intended by even creating a nation, a nation as a republic devoted eventually for freedom to be uniform throughout all the land. But that's eventually. It has to happen by the consent of the governed. And in this case, it meant that that consent had to happen through states The open thing was, what about territories? Do Congress get to tell territories what to do or not? And Lincoln would cite history as well as principle to explain that Congress did, in fact, have the authority to regulate those institutions in those territories. He cited the Northwest Ordinance of 1787, which was re-inaugurated under the first Congress of the United States when it was uh, obviously uh, first put forward by the Congress under the Articles of Confederation, Perpetual Union. Lincoln would cite that. He would cite Congress's efforts to prevent slavery from entering the country in 1808, and then they equated it with piracy in 1820. All of this Lincoln cited from the founders, from the founding generation, to show this moral anti-slavery impulse or impetus that they eventually wanted, as Lincoln puts it, to put slavery on the course of ultimate extinction. For him... The lodestar of the country for understanding those compromises in the Constitution was, in fact, the Declaration of Independence, what he called the spirit of 76. He said the spirit of 76 is antithetical to the spirit of Nebraska, the Nebraska uh, bill, which became the Kansas-Nebraska Act of 1854. Thank you so much for emphasizing Lincoln's reverence for the Declaration. Uh, Visitors to the Constitution Center's new Civil War exhibit know that he stood before Independence Hall in 1861 and said, I would rather be assassinated on this spot than abandon the principles of the Declaration. Sid, the Dred Scott decision had come down in 1857, and Chief Justice Taney infamously held not only that African Americans have no rights which the white man is bound to respect, but that Congress had no power to pass the Missouri Compromise because it violated the property rights of slave owners. Uh, what was Lincoln's position about the Dred Scott decision? What was Douglas's response, and how central was that to the constitutional discussion in the Lincoln-Douglas debates? Uh, the Dred Scott decision of um, 1857 was intended to end once and for all the entire question of slavery in the United States and whether it could be extended to the territories. Uh, Roger uh, Tawney, who had been part of um, President Andrew Jackson's kitchen cabinet, uh, had been appointed to the Supreme Court. He was the chief justice. He was 80 years old. He uh, was a, a Southerner from Maryland, a slave state. He himself owned slaves. Uh, and uh, he had um, issued his decision within two days of 
the inauguration of James Buchanan, a pro-slavery Democrat, as president. Buchanan had behind the scenes uh, worked with the uh, Supreme Court justices to ensure of what, what the decision would be and that it would be uh, the one that he wanted. Tawney's decision declared not only that uh, black men had no rights which the white man was bound to respect, but that was a historical uh, interpretation of what the what he said the founders believed. And so he what in saying that he was citing original intent. He was appealing to uh, the concept of original intent of the Constitution. Uh, and um, he said that also, the second point, that Congress had no role here. That was the uh, sine qua non, the essential position of the Southerners in the Congress and throughout the South, that Congress could not prohibit slavery, that they could not rule on it uh, at all, and that therefore, according to uh, Tawney, people could bring their slaves into this territory. Now, this was a uh, not only a, an, a blow against uh, Lincoln and the Republicans and their position, but also against Douglas. Now, how they each responded um, varied. Lincoln uh, uh, completely opposed the decision, although he said that Republicans had to obey the law, but he would do everything he could to oppose it. Um, and he believed um, uh, that um, uh, the territories um, should uh, never be open to slavery. He believed in the concept that had been developed by a variety of thinkers, including Salmon Chase, who was then the senator from Ohio, in Freedom National, that the Constitution itself had provided grounds to limit slavery. And, um, and he appealed to the founders on an anti-slavery basis. He cited the Ordinance of 1787, which Professor Morell has already pointed out rightly. Um, for Lincoln, that was a crucial point. And he believed that the ordinance was intrinsic to the Constitution as one of the first acts passed and also inspired by Thomas Jefferson. It also gave birth to the state that Lincoln came from, Illinois, and he, which was a territory. And it, and it showed that the Congress could prohibit slavery in the territories. Um, the decision, the Tawney decision, was also aimed at destroying the platform of the Republican Party and the Republican Party as a political force in the country by essentially making their platform illegal. Now, what's Douglas's quandary? Douglas's quandary is that he believed in popular sovereignty. Let the settlers decide. It was a cynical, um, vague position that he hoped would satisfy all sides and allow him to get through uh, the process of the Democratic Party and somehow uh, grab the prize of the nomination for presidents. But the problem with the Tawney decision is that um, it rendered popular sovereignty moot. Um, now, Douglas uh, uh, declared his support for it, and he did not acknowledge that the decision had essentially demolished his position. But during the debate, Lincoln would make sure that Douglas did not escape, and he would trap him on that very point. And he would trap him in a political way to damage 
Douglas down the line so that he would be hurt with Southerners um, as he went forward seeking the nomination. Thank you so much for emphasizing the fear that Dred Scott inspired in Lincoln that slavery would become national. And uh, Lincoln said during the debates, uh, what's necessary for the nationalization of slavery? It's simply the next Dred Scott decision. It's merely for the Supreme Court to decide that no state under the Constitution can exclude it, just as they've already decided that under the Constitution, neither Congress nor the territorial legislatures can do it. Lucas, I now am beginning to understand from both of you why Lincoln's um, emphasis on the original understanding of the Constitution was so important and his insistence that the intent of the founders was slowly to eliminate slavery rather than to constitutionalize it. In his Cooper Union speech, uh, Lincoln had recently read Madison's notes and he found that Madison explicitly said – as Sean Wilentz points out in his new book, No Property in Man, that the Constitution meant to take no position on whether there could be property in man. How significant was that realization to Lincoln? And do you agree with Sean Wilentz or not that discovering it convinced Lincoln that the Constitution was not a pro-slavery document and was crucial to his constitutional position in the Lincoln-Douglas debates? Um, I think it reinforced a position that Lincoln had already come to, um, which was this connection uh, connection between the Declaration of Independence and its principles and the means, the constitutional means of carrying that out, which was the United States Constitution. It helped Lincoln immensely, as well as other uh, anti-slavery forces like Frederick Douglass, to point out that if founders were such devotees of white enslavement of blacks, why were they afraid of using that word? Uh, the only time, in fact, the first time that the word slave appears in the Constitution is when the United States decides to get rid of it, the 13th Amendment. Uh, but that, of course, doesn't happen until later. So Lincoln points out that in the Constitution, it, whenever slavery is alluded to, the word person or persons is used. And so uh, finding that Madison's notes indicates that they did not want to respect that there could be property in men or human beings— um, only reinforced a position, I believe, that Lincoln had come to uh, much earlier. Uh, so it was good for him. You, you, you want, at least during the time of the founding, not, excuse me, during the time of antebellum America, uh, certainly up through the early to mid-50s, you wanted the founders on your side. Everybody wanted to be patriotic. It was uh, the Confederates, it was the secessionists um, who would have to make the argument that uh, they were doing something new and better than the founders when they created a government that explicitly put slavery in their constitution and made white, con uh, white control of blacks uh, the cornerstone, as Alexander Stevens would put it, uh, of their constitution. So I don't, I don't know that it was um, Lincoln's reading of Madison's notes uh, was a, a real game changer for Lincoln. It helped bolster his position. Uh, especially because he was trying to uh, wrest the mantle of the founders from the shoulders of Douglas. Douglas had been doing that uh, as he was doing it for uh, the mantle of, of Henry Clay, trying to, to show that he was the inheritor of, of that legacy, of, of being the, the great unionizer of the country. Um, but it helped Lincoln, um, uh, again, establish that connection between what the founders um, how they declared independence originally in favor of equality, in favor of individual rights, in favor of government by consent of the governed, 
uh, and connecting that to what they did structurally, politically with their United States Constitution, forming a more perfect new, uh, union to carry out those principles. Of course, principles that had to be done uh, by consent, and that meant they had to respect federalism. They had to respect uh, the rights of the states, if you will, which is even in the 1860 Republican platform. Um, so, yeah, Madison is is, is good for Lincoln, uh, but uh, even more profound, I think, for Lincoln is his respect for uh, Jefferson, not as a politician, because he was a Democrat after all, uh, and Lincoln was a Whig turned Republican, but his respect for uh, the principles of Jefferson, which he found enshrined in the Declaration of Independence. Sid, our friend Sean Wilentz got some major pushback from other historians, uh, some of whom argued with Garrison that the Constitution was in fact a pro-slavery document, and others you know, who said that he overemphasized the importance of Madison's thoughts on whether the Constitution took a position on property and man. How significant was this and why was it significant? Is it just a question of uh, rhetorical notions of original understanding so Lincoln could say that Taney was wrong in his description of the intention of the founders or was there more precise legal implications from whether or not the Constitution was a, originally a pro-slavery document? Well, Sean Wilentz's book, um, I think, is a very important book, uh, and it is uh, it makes the case that um, um, many people early on who were uh, opposed to slavery uh, 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 saw the Constitution as an anti found in it an anti-slavery basis, and um, it does not mention slavery on purpose, and. Uh, there is a split that takes place later in, uh, in among um, the anti-slavery forces, and this precedes Lincoln, and it establishes the grounds that Lincoln then walks upon. And the split is between the followers, the abolitionist followers of uh, William Lloyd Garrison, who are immediate, immediatists. They want immediate emancipation, but they also declare that the Constitution itself is a pact with the devil, that it is a pro-slavery doctrine, uh, and that uh, and Garrison himself uh, lights it on fire at a Fourth of July rally. Um, on the other hand, there are anti-slavery forces who become, and uh, it should be noted, Garrison is a moralist. He does not believe in politics. He believes politics is impure and corrupt and that people opposed to slavery should not participate in politics. They should simply condemn slavery and shame the slaveholders and the South. Another group arises, uh, and there are many people in it, including Salman Chase, uh, even William Seward of New York and other prominent political people. It begins in the Liberty Party of 1840. Phillips, the idea that the Constitution is, has an anti-slavery basis, and uh, that um, it then be, that then becomes uh, a grounds for them to develop a politics, and they develop the idea that a slavery is not permitted in the North, and that Congress can rule against it. And that the voice of the people can be heard on slavery. And that, as Lincoln says, it can be put on the course of ultimate uh, extinction. It also means that slavery is a local institution regulated by the states and, and that the federal government cannot really protect it. So that's the basis of political um, 
the political anti-slavery movement that over time becomes the Republican Party. And that is the position that Lincoln takes on himself. Now, the Jefferson uh, business is a very interesting one. Uh, Lincoln points out uh, in his House Divided speech, uh, accepting the nomination for the um, for the Senate uh, by the Illinois Republican Party to run against Douglas, leads to the to the famous debates um, that um, Jefferson was a slaveholder, and yet he wrote the Declaration of Independence. And uh, Lincoln takes Jefferson as uh, um, not only a source for his own politics because of that, but he also uh, claims him for the new party. And he says um, later, after the debates, it reminds him of a story. Many things reminded Lincoln of a story to make people understand what was going on politically. And he said, it reminds me of two drunken men I once saw late at night fighting in the street and they fought their way into each other's coats and that's what's going on now the parties have fought their way into each other's coats and we now have fought our way into jefferson's coat the author of the declaration of independence all men are created equal the the man who inspired the ordinance of 1787 that allows congress to prohibit slavery in territories and he is our progenitor. That's our, our, our original intent. And it does not belong to the Democratic Party anymore. So Lincoln is, uh, in his own way, inventing a new tradition of anti-slavery politics. Lucas, Lincoln's position against Douglas, help us understand to what degree it was constitutional and to what moral. Uh, Lincoln says if slavery is wrong, then it would be wrong morally for territories to embrace it. Does he also think that it was unconstitutional for them to do so? And to what degree was Douglas's position consistent or inconsistent with his understanding of the Declaration? Sure. Um, I think uh, let me start first by um, reintroducing the abolitionists, which I thought, which I thought was very helpful um, uh, the way you did that. Because the way I understand Lincoln's political theory or political thinking is um, he understood the Declaration as stating two grand principles, the principle of human equality, you know, the equal rights to life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness that everybody has simply by being human. So if you've got equality on the one side, and the other side, you've got government by consent of the governed. And what you have with the abolitionists is they only want to look at one side of the coin, William Lloyd Garrison trumpeting equality, but giving short shrift to the constitutional consent of the governed. What is Stephen Douglas interested he ignores equality completely and only wants us to look at consent. Uh, Lincoln believed in consent. He called it the sheet anchor of American republicanism. Uh, but Douglas thought consent was everything. It's like, you know, turtles all the way down. For Douglas, it was consent all the way down. Lincoln saw them, the abolitionists, as well as Douglas, as only wanting to see one side of the coin of the Declaration of Independence. And Lincoln saw them both and understood Americans as having to see and, and grab hold of both, both equal rights as well as the consent by which you secure those rights. So that, that's, that, for me, is the platform upon which we have to understand anything about Lincoln's constitutional vision 
um, and his constitutional critique of Douglas. He thought and painstakingly laid out in his Cooper Institute address of 1860 that it was a constitutional position that he was on, that it was a firm one. It wasn't just a moral one. Um, it was a firm one precisely because he could cite the founders, both their words and their deeds um, in the revolutionary period and the early American constitutional period, constitutional actions, legislative actions that showed that they had uh, the political grounds and constitutional grounds by which to secure moral ends like freedom. I had mentioned earlier, right, according to the Constitution, Congress was not allowed to deal with a particular commodity. And unfortunately, at that time, that commodity was human beings. Out of all the things that Congress could do in terms of international trade, to get the Constitution and to keep <laughs> South Carolina and Georgia in the Union, they had to compromise and say, fine, Congress does have this authority to trade with the Indian tribes and nations as well as foreign powers, except for slaves Slavery, we will not allow Congress to touch the importation of slaves until January 1st, 1808. And even then, Congress wouldn't have to if they didn't want to. Well, lo and behold, the slaveholder, President Thomas Jefferson in 1807, signs a bill to take effect as soon as constitutionally permissible, banning the import of slaves into the United States, January 1, 1808. They want to put teeth into this. So 12 years later in 1820, they equate it, that the importation of slaves into the United States with piracy. The punishment for piracy is death. Lincoln is the only president to execute a slave trader. The famous case of Nathaniel Gordon, February 1862, he's the only president ever to punish someone to the fullest extent of the law for enforcing that 1820 uh, law. So all of which to say, when he was battling against Douglas in 1858, he thought he was not only on the surest ground morally, but with regards to um, uh, slavery being wrong. If slavery is not wrong, nothing is wrong, Lincoln once said. He thought he was on the surest ground constitutionally, both by the letter of the Constitution as well as by the actions of the very men who drafted that Constitution, many of whom actually served in the original uh, or the first Congresses, and obviously uh, President Washington, and a, a few others uh, uh, thereafter. Sid, I'm still trying to understand exactly what provision of the Constitution Lincoln thought would be violated if a territory decided to allow slavery. Uh, there were some abolitionists who invoked Article 4, Section 2, the Privileges or Immunities Clause, the citizens of each state shall be entitled to all privileges and immunities of citizens. And they put in an ellipsis of the United States in the several states and said that slavery violated that clause. But that was a minority position. If as long as Congress refused to resurrect the Missouri Compromise and repeal the Kansas-Nebraska Act, why did Lincoln think that Douglas was wrong, that the territories could, if they chose, allow slavery? On the grounds that um – we've discussed, which were the ordinance of 1787, the belief that Congress could legislate against um, the extension of slavery, which the Dred Scott decision said they could not, and Lincoln contested that. And he continued to cite time and again the Declaration of Independence. Lincoln said that the, um, that the Declaration uh, of Independence was the frame of the Constitution. And particularly uh, 
uh, the provision of all men are created equal. So it was on a larger ground and then on a moral, larger moral ground and then on a political ground that he opposed um, uh, all this. Um, he, uh, in the Cooper Union uh, speech, which takes place after the debate in uh, February of 1860, um, after uh, Lincoln's studies, uh, all sorts of um, uh, uh, Newspapers, Madison's notes, um, uh, and uh, books about the uh, writing of the Constitution. Um, he uh, he concludes uh, that the majority of the of the founders uh, were really anti-slavery, and he goes through it. He makes a very uh, a deliberate and uh, precise statistical uh, case about it, and it's on that basis that he says that. Um, uh, slavery can uh, can be prohibited. So, um, you know, Lincoln is constantly um, looking for grounds among the founders, within the Constitution, around the Constitution, in the Declaration, in the Ordinance of 1787, uh, to put together an anti-slavery argument. And he uh, never stops doing that. Um, uh, from the moment he makes his first speech in um, 1854 in the uh, House of Representatives at the state capitol in Springfield, when he talks about the blood of the revolution as a basis for uh, being against slavery because they fought for the principles of the, of the Declaration of Independence. So Lincoln is constantly working at it. He's thinking about the arguments that are made on the other side, and he is always trying to find a new means to uh, marshal the founders on his side. I understand it now that you've both explained it so well that because Lincoln felt that Dred Scott was wrongly decided in violation of the original understanding of the framers, he thought the decision should be overturned, that the for that reason the uh, Missouri Compromise should be resurrected and that would make Douglas's uh, position out of bounds. Uh, Lucas, was was Lincoln unequivocally correct in his constitutional claims and his originalist claims about the original understanding of the framers, or did Douglas have arguable points? Uh, Douglas had, or I guess the, the the best way to put it is that Douglas could make a plausible case as a result of, of de facto practice that the founders. Um, uh, cherished, cherished federalism so much that they did not intend for the federal government to have too much authority at the state level. And I say plausible um, by this example. Douglas constantly pointed out that if Lincoln were correct, that the founders wanted the nation to be uniform in its principles throughout all of the, the colonies then turned states, what that would have done is would have been made all the states pro-slavery because when the Constitution is formed, uh, only Massachusetts has banned slavery by that point in time, right? For example, New York doesn't pass a gradual emancipation law until 1799. There's slaves in New York uh, until the early 1820s. Uh, so uh, Douglas would constantly refer to this historical truth, which is, yes, the nation began with mostly slave-holding states. He uses that to make the argument that there's a principle at stake here, what he calls popular sovereignty, and therefore they never intended 
any ma- you know major principle to be uh, imposed upon the entire country except the principle of you get to vote up or down, but nobody gets to tell anybody else how to vote. One state votes one way, another state votes another way. But Lincoln points out that, yeah, that may have been the case historically. Nobody can deny that. But the founders did, in fact, intend for the country to be a free country. And in order for it to be a free country, yes, it can make concessions and compromises in the short run. But to be a free country, notice how they established structures, political structures, even constitutions on the basis of principles that unless we keep alive those principles, those structures can be turned to anti-small-r Republican or anti-democratic Aims. Um, this is what made D- Douglas's um, so-called "don't care" policy so. In, uh, in Lincoln used the word "insidious." It was insidious because uh, in the 1850s, for slavery to become national, you did not have to take up, uh, uh, you didn't have to preach the expansion of slavery. You didn't have to make a moral defense of slavery. All you had to do was convince free white Northerners not to care what people who didn't look like them, what happened to them when they were taken to territories. He says, you do that. You teach whites in Illinois and all the way up to Maine that it shouldn't matter to them what happens to a few blacks in Nebraska or Oregon or Kansas. And he says, this is basically a fait accompli. That's what's going to nationalize slavery. Because if we accept the Dred Scott opinion that Congress doesn't have the authority in the territories to deal with that domestic institution, and therefore territorial legislatures don't have that authority, then the only thing left is, hmm, if the Constitution says you have a constitutional right to possess people, as long as they're black, deriving in in a weird way from the 15th Amendment, according to Justice Taney, then the only thing left is the states. And if the states have a practice of banning slavery— but the Constitution has been interpreted to vest any American with the right to own slaves, guess what the supremacy clause of the Constitution is going to mandate? It's going to mandate that you could take your slave to New York or Illinois and it become a practice that that state cannot contravene. All that's left, as Lincoln predicted in his House Divided speech in 1858, is a Dred Scott too? Just one more case that doesn't deal with Congress or the territories. It deals with the states and what states can, under the United States Constitution, do or not do. That's what bothered Lincoln. That's why Lincoln thought the enemy in the 18, in 1858 was not the pro-slave ultra uh, uh, ultras of the South. It was free whites. And, and Douglas's doctrine that would be tempting them to become indifferent to what happens to black people. Now, let me uh, rush to add uh, a point I should have made on your previous question. It's not that Lincoln said it was unconstitutional for slavery to enter the territories or that slavery per se was unconstitutional. He couldn't say that because slavery did exist in a, a good number of the states, and it existed for the reasons historically that we all know it was a product of a compromise. What he was arguing is, just because we have slavery in our, in our midst, that doesn't mean we shouldn't be working towards its, errat- uh, its eradication. Um, he thought that the founders did what they could uh, at, 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 as best as they could uh, at the time. Um, and, uh, and so that, you know, there's a difference between a principle on the one hand uh, and a compromise 
uh, on the other. So in short, he thought that the founders believed that but for the American Union, there would be no freedom for whites or blacks. Um, individual freedom required political independence from foreign powers, namely Great Britain. Political independence required domestic unity. So to keep the union of the American colonies and then the union of the states, it required comp compromises to be made regarding slavery. As Lincoln put it, we had slavery among us. This is at the time of the founding. But we could not get our constitution unless we permitted them to remain in slavery. We could not secure the good we did secure if we grasped for more. And having by necessity submitted to that much, it does not destroy the principle that is the charter of our liberties. If you believe in popular sovereignty the way Douglas preaches it, all you're telling people is that there is no right principle of action but mere self-interest. This is majority tyranny. It basically says if you're outnumbered politically, the only rights or privileges you have are whatever rights the majority wants to give you. And Lincoln said that is counter to the principles of the Declaration. It's counter to the rights of any human being. You have to teach every political majority that, that each individual has rights that by uh, nature deserve the protection of that majority. Sid, one of the remarkable things that emerges from the latest volume of your magisterial series is what an original uh, scholar Lincoln was in terms of his constitutional research. You note that he read George Fitzhugh's Sociology for the South, which had criticized uh, Jefferson's uh, declaration for its praise of equality. And then you note that before the Lincoln-Douglas debates, he read the debates over the federal convention in 1787. He read the autobiography of Thomas Jefferson, the papers of James Madison, Benjamin Franklin's petitions against slavery. To what degree were Lincoln's conclusions original to him based on his reading? And tell us about how Lincoln changed his mind about the constitutional status of slavery in light of his extraordinary and deep reading. Lincoln um, was a lawyer. And he was um, somebody who had um, learned how to make an argument. And he believed that a politics depended upon many things, but also and ultimately an argument. He learned how to make an argument in many forums, in county courthouses, before juries of common people. He learned how to make an argument in politics in the state legislature. He learned how to make an argument in the Congress, the United States, in his one term in the Congress. And he was uh, constantly working on himself. Uh, uh, he traveled um, uh, with an entourage of lawyers through central Illinois, going county courthouse to county courthouse in the, uh, uh, in the uh, 1850s. And they were astounded to find him um, awake late at night by candlelight, studying the principles of Euclid. Why was he studying Euclid? To learn logic, how to make an argument. And he combined that with a uh, his own deep uh, reading of constitutional uh, texts. He did not want to simply accept everybody else's um, derivative accounts of what uh, happened. He had to learn it himself. He had to assimilate it himself. He had to work it out himself. Um, long after his death, his private secretaries, um, John Hay and John Nicolay, discovered fragments that he had written, uh, notes to himself, in which he is uh, in Euclidean 
logic working out his arguments against uh, slavery from constitutional um, documents. Uh, so Lincoln is is an high, is a highly unusual political figure. He's political to the marrow of his bones, and in his mind, he is crystallizing on his own um, his constitutional uh, views. And at the same time, you have to remember about the Lincoln-Douglas debates. We're talking about these grand constitutional doctrines. Douglas was a master demagogue. He was one of the great demagogues of the age. And the debates, uh, in the debates, he throws against uh, Lincoln every racist uh, uh, political wedge uh, he can. He, uh, uh, he not only calls Lincoln a clown and a drunk, of course, Lincoln was a teetotaler, but he also um, says that Lincoln uh, believes in complete uh, Negro equality, is the phrase. I don't believe he used the word Negro, uh, Douglas, um, to the point of a favoring amalgamation, meaning a sexual intercourse between the races and uh, forcing Lincoln to debate that. Um, he didn't want Lincoln to argue his uh, uh, constitutional views. He wanted to put Lincoln completely on the defensive on um, these racist grounds. Uh, and he would uh, say Lincoln was an ally of Frederick Douglass, who was considered to be uh, a you know a, a disreputable uh, abolitionist character. Uh, being called an abolitionist was like being called a communist at the height of the Cold War. Douglass would use any tactic, employ any invective, use any demagogic uh, trick. And Lincoln had to work his constitutional views through this thicket of demagoguery as well and figure his way forward. Lucas, do you agree that Douglas was a demagogue or, or do you think he was making uh, plausible uh, constitutional arguments? And then tell us about the relationship between these constitutional arguments in the Lincoln-Douglas debates that we've been discussing and Lincoln's eventual conclusion that an amendment to the Constitution was necessary to ban slavery everywhere. Yeah, I would say that it was especially in the 1858, but also in 1860, um, Douglas gives this really um, uh, probably his most extreme speech. Um, uh, it's a speech entitled Invasion of the States, where he actually calls for uh, legislation that will essentially ban conspiratorial speech, <laughs> throw people in prison for saying things that might lead to future, uh, you know, additional John Brown uh, outrages as, as what happened at Harper's Ferry. Uh, but so, I mean, Douglas knew, uh, as, uh, as, uh, Sidney mentioned, all, all the, the rhetorical political tricks, uh, uh, of the trade. And so he was, um, he could out demagogue the worst demagogue. Uh, but that said, uh, I think the best way to approach Stephen Douglas is really to see him as someone who, uh, of course, not averse to padding his own wallet in terms of the Transcontinental Railroad, but someone who really is trying to figure out a way to keep the union together. He thinks the abolitionists are, are, are driving the country apart. He agrees with John Calhoun in that sense. Um, he thinks that, that we have got to find a way to keep the free states and the slave states uh, together on the same page. Uh, he's an expansionist. He wants the United States to expand. Now that it's made it all all the way to the Pacific, he wants it to go down through Central and Southern America. I mean, he is a manifest destiny guy in all caps. 
And he thinks that the way to do this is local popular sovereignty. Who's going to say, no, I don't want to vote my own interests, right? This is a, this is a policy that sells in, in the New England. It sells in the West. It sells in the South. And he thinks it's his, it's his ticket in 1860 to the presidency. Um, his problem, of course, is the Democratic Party required that the majority have to be a two-thirds majority. And that's how the South um, held their trump card, as it were. And that's what divided the Democratic Party and eventually led to a Republican becoming president. So uh, I would say that at least when I teach this to my students, I don't want them going into it thinking, well, we all know Lincoln is right and Douglas is wrong. I want them to, to do what they can in reading Douglas's speeches and, and parsing his arguments to see, well, what is the best case that Douglas could that you could make for Douglas as a true patriot, as someone who really is trying to save the union? And what policy did he think brilliantly that, that, that he could settle on that could manage to, to persuade, uh, and, again, whites north and south of the, of the Mason-Dixon line? And he thinks popular sovereignty is it. That you let people do what they want locally. Who can argue against that? That's the genius of the spread of American uh, democracy, and uh, he thinks that's the key to the future. So I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't put him in, in 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 all caps as a demagogue. I think that at least a plausible case can be made that um, that popular sovereignty was a way to try to keep the union together. But what Lincoln was at pains to point out is it wouldn't be a union worth. Uh, worthy of the saving. It would be a union where we will have gutted constitutional self-government without even moving a comma of the Constitution. We will have told people, you can do whatever you want politically as long as you're in the majority. And if that happens, Lincoln thinks, that's something that's going to turn around and bite you on the butt. I hope you're always in the majority because if you're not, you've basically got no rights. Um, Stephen Douglas, at the end of the day, was what philosophers would call a legal positivist, uh, which is to say that as long as it's legal, it's it's legitimate, it's constitutional. As long as you've got a majority behind you, and that was, and then as long as that majority was uh, the legitimate expression of the popular will and consent, then whatever the majority says goes. You know, the vox populi, vox dei, the voice of the people is the voice of God. Um, that's Stephen Douglas, and Lincoln thought that's not America. America has to hold tight, hold on to the original vision that all men are created equal, all meaning all human beings, regardless of race, color, creed, you name it, uh, that once we lose sight of that as a people, then we will be um, moving away from right. Uh, how did he put it in the Cooper Institute address? In, in the conclusion, he says, let us have faith that right makes might, not the other way around, which is pretty much world history. <laughs> if you got the power, you can do whatever you want. Lincoln said, no, I thought we were doing something different when we declared independence. Many thanks for that and that fascinating distinction between Douglas's legal positivism, uh, the law is whatever the people say, with a more natural rights-based vision that our rights come from God or nature and not from government. Sid, the last question to you is, although he did believe in the natural law principles of the Declaration, Lincoln still thought that a 13th Amendment was necessary in order to give the government of the United States the power to ban slavery, not only in the states that were under rebellion or under military control, but also in uh, throughout the Union. So uh, to what degree did his 
thinking about the Declaration influence his thoughts about the need for a 13th Amendment and what is the relation between Lincoln's position in the Lincoln-Douglas debates and his eventual conclusions that we needed a constitutional amendment to ban slavery everywhere? Well, now we're leaping ahead to uh, the relationship between the Emancipation Proclamation and the 13th Amendment. Uh, In the uh, Lincoln-Douglas debates, Lincoln ends by saying uh, that Douglas is blowing out the moral lights among us by uh, not believing in the uh, principle, central principle of the, of the country in the Declaration of Independence, all men are created equal. He makes that real uh, in the Emancipation uh, Proclamation, uh, it, which is the greatest confiscation of private property in human history. But it is done on the basis of military power in a civil war uh, Lincoln finally comes to believing he possesses this military power, but that he needs something more than that because the war will end. And then what? Is it? Does it still hold? He needs something of permanence to lodge the Constitution that establishes the uh, utter legality of what he has done in the Emancipation Proclamation and to make it universal throughout the country, to make it national. And that's why he requires... Uh, the 13th Amendment. He's also afraid um, that um, of what might happen at the end of the war without a 13th Amendment. And what are the rights of uh, the slaves? Um, he, he needs to have um, this done. Uh, so um, Lincoln um, moves from debating um, rights uh, uh, against the extension of slavery. He goes through the early stages of the war, um, uh, moving uh, deliberately, slowly, uh, opposing the uh, radical um, Republicans who want an early uh, proclamation for emancipation uh, because he must hold the border states. He says, uh, uh, he says um, you know, I must have, uh, I must have Kentucky. Uh, and um, and and it and he he only steps when he feels that he can politically sustain his position, and if it could not be politically sustained, then it would be ruined. Um, and that and he reaches the Emancipation Proclamation, but then later he must have the Thirteenth uh, Amendment. Um, Lincoln is thinking both on several levels simultaneously. He is thinking constitutionally, he is thinking politically, and he is also thinking morally. Lucas, last word to you. How broad a 13th Amendment did Lincoln want before he was martyred? In our new exhibit on the Civil War and Reconstruction, we have an online tool that shows that Charles Sumner originally introduced a draft of the 13th Amendment that had an equal protection clause that would have guaranteed equality throughout the Union, but that dropped out and the final draft, of course, merely banned chattel slavery. Do we have a sense of how broadly Lincoln wanted to enshrine equality in the Constitution and what? how did that vision relate to the positions he took in the Lincoln-Douglas debates about the Declaration? 
Yeah, um, you've hidden a, the the great sixty four thousand dollar question about Lincoln and Reconstruction in that question <laughs> as the question next to what is Lincoln's religion. That is the question that we Lincoln guys, we Lincoln scholars, get most often: is had Lincoln lived, had the assassination failed, mm. uh, and he survived in a viable way as president, what would Reconstruction have looked like? Um, I hasten to add that that the 13th Amendment, um, Lincoln was late to that um, uh, plank because he didn't he was unsure about how um, uh, how best to secure emancipation. He, if emancipation were to take place, he wanted it to be established on its surest grounds. And for him, Plan A was not an amendment to the Constitution. Plan A was for the states themselves, again, expressing the consent of the governed, to ban it on their own. And he made three separate, at least three separate appeals, beginning with Delaware in November of 61, and then the so-called border slave states, those slave states that stayed loyal to the Union. He made appeals to their congressmen saying, look, we, we will loan you the money. Congress will loan you the money. Please initiate some form of gradual and, yes, compensated emancipation. You do this, this will kill the Confederacy. This will kill the secession effort, and they all, even Delaware with its, what, 1,800 slaves, uh, as Alan Gelsow has put it, he threw it back in his face. Lincoln tried to get the American people using this existing structures to do the right thing, to do the most secure thing, which is, if it's a state institution, have the states ban it. When those efforts failed, and for the reasons that Sidney also mentioned, political reasons, uh, moral reasons, obviously, and prudential ones during the war, when it became a fit and necessary war measure, he issued his Emancipation Proclamation. But again, what would happen after the war is over? Um, at that point, he got on the bandwagon for the 13th Amendment because he thought it would be the only way to actually ban the, the great behemoth of danger, as he put it, the only thing that ever seriously disrupted the American people, slavery. How broad should its reach have been? Congress now, under its provisions, being able to pass laws that would carry it out. Um, Lincoln was a stickler, even as an executive, even during war when the executive, the Article II branch, comes to the fore more than the legislative or the judicial. Lincoln was a stickler for the Constitution and for, co for following constitutional procedures. Once the war was over, the executive would recede and Congress would come to the foreground again. In a republic, the lawmaking body is the most powerful branch of government, and rightly so. They make the laws. This is the people giving themselves their own commands. Lincoln thought at that point, you have to make what Congress does jibe with what states exist to do. And Lincoln was not in favor of obliterating the states. He was not in favor of what the Anti-Federalists called consolidation. And so on the one hand, he wanted the, uh, the, the, he thought that the slaves deserved every right and privilege that any white, free white uh, American citizen had. We already mentioned that Article 4, uh, 4 provision with regards to privileges or immunities. That was something he argued for in the, his inauguration speech of March 4th, 1861. He, uh, he referenced that in, his, um, in the 1858 debates, uh, uh, in his House Divided speech with, uh, against Stephen Douglas when he accepted the, the unanimous um, uh, nomination of the Republican Party. So while on the one hand he believes in the in the uh, the privileges or immunities of of citizens of one state being respected by the uh, the other states, he also recognized that state governments had a purpose, and that the the vast majority of your rights are going to be secured at the local level. Uh, that's called the police power. And Lincoln, I think, would have worked with Congress to do whatever he could 
to encourage, let's say, the least <laughs> uh, prejudicial, the least bigoted, the least rebellious elements of uh, the former Confederate states to try to get them to do right by uh, uh, three to four million black per, uh, people, uh, the vast majority of whom live in the South. Thank you so much, Sidney Lewenthal and Lucas Morell, for a deep, illuminating, and uh, constitutionally exhilarating discussion of the Lincoln-Douglas debates and, and Lincoln and Douglas's view of the relation between the Declaration and the Constitution. I've learned from both of you how important it is to understand the technical details of Lincoln's constitutional views in order to understand the moral majesty of his views as well and of the constitutional achievement of Reconstruction. Sidney, Lucas, thank you so much for joining. Thanks for the invitation. Thank you. Today's show was engineered by Greg Sheckler and produced by Jackie McDermott. Research was provided by Lana Ulrich and the phenomenal Constitutional Content team. And this summer, we are so honored to have a phenomenal group from the University of Chicago. And with me in studio are Perry Wilson and Ellie Rutke, who did a great job on this week's prep, which made the show possible. Uh, your homework, dear We the People listeners, of course, read the Lincoln-Douglas debates, which Perry and Ellie excerpted for me, but they're so constitutionally rich, you'll learn so much. And then do read Sid Blumenthal's new book when it comes out, and Lucas Morell's book when it comes out next July. That's All the Powers of the Earth by Sid Blumenthal, out in September, and Lincoln and the Founding by Lucas Morell, released next July. Please rate, review, and subscribe to We The People on Apple Podcasts and recommend the show to anyone everywhere who is hungry for constitutional elucidation and enlightenment and wants to be inspired to read Euclid in our spare time, which I've been inspired to try to do as well. And always remember that the National Constitution Center is a private nonprofit. We rely on the generosity, passion, and engagement of people from around the country who are inspired to take time not only to read Euclid, but to listen to podcasts like this one, this unique podcast, which teaches all of us every week so much about the Constitution, its history, and its current meaning. You can support this crucially important mission by becoming a member at constitutioncenter.org forward slash membership or give a donation of any amount to support our work, including this podcast, at constitutioncenter.org forward slash donate. On behalf of the National Constitution Center, I'm Jeffrey Rosenberg.